The world-famous Conservation Canine Camp will next be running in southeast Queensland, Australia, from the 21st to the 25th of August. Join us with your dog to start your journey into conservation detection. Visit padfoot.com.au to book your place today. Welcome to the Conservation Canine Podcast, the show that educates and celebrates the dog teams protecting the natural world. I'm James Davis, and in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lauren DeGrief from Florida International University. We talk about Lauren's research into olfaction, the pitfalls of the cocktail method of odor imprinting, and her new book, Canines The Original Biosensors. Lauren DeGrief, welcome to the Conservation Canine Podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. No, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. So, so let's start with some introductions. So for those of you who, or those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, so can you tell us who you are, what you do, and how life has led you to this point? Oh, yes, happy to. Um, so I I'm currently uh, reside in Miami, Florida, in USA. Um, I started here. I started my career here as well. I started uh, as a graduate student at Florida International University. So my background, I'm a PhD chemist, um, and specifically my PhD is in forensic chemistry. So um, I honestly, I when I went into graduate school, I thought I wanted to study arson and explosives. And then I realized that canine detection was a science and became very quickly fascinated by it and joined um, a research group to study. In that particular point, I was studying specifically human scent and human remains odor um, as it relates to canine detection and training aids and things of that nature. Um, After I uh, graduated, I did a quick internship at the FBI for about a year and a half, working mostly with cadaver dogs and blood detection dogs. Then I moved um, to the Naval Research Laboratory in Washington, D.C., Um, I spent the last 10 years there, um, and I started mostly in explosives detection research, um, and then I was able to broaden a little bit into general odor detection questions and a little bit in narcotics, Um, and I very recently left there because, um, not that it wasn't a fantastic place to work, but I really wanted to broaden my research interests, um, and I have come back around to Florida International University as a professor. So I've been there since August and um, am very happily, rapidly increasing the number of topics that we get to study. Great. So, so what are those topics? What are you working on? Ooh, okay. So I have a very cool human remains um, project that I'm getting up and going. So everything's getting up and going because I'm new. So I have a human remains project. I have a more general contamination. So I have a project where we're just trying to get a handle on how rapidly training aids get contaminated when you use them when in just normal use, not your fault, nothing you can do about it. Right. Um, and then, so how rapidly they get contaminated, what kind of contaminants tend to stick to them? And then can we get that off in a way that doesn't damage the training aid? So that's another project. Um, and then I have one related to buried explosives, looking at how um, odor moves through soil specifically for um, improvised explosive materials. Um, 
I have an oil detection. So dogs finding um, crude oil from crude oil spills. So that's my kind of environmental side of things. Um, and now, and now I'm in the process of writing a variety of different grant proposals. So we'll see what I get into next. Oh, the joy of grant proposals, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never, I mean, my Navy job also required grant proposals. So it's just, it's just the way it is. It's fine. I think, I think it takes, <laughs> I, tell a, myself. I think it takes a certain individual to do those things. I've done a few of them and I never, ever want to go one near one ever again. It's <laughs> just torturous. The, really, the money's not worth it. <laughs> I really like coming up with the ideas, writing them are painful. And the really nice thing is now that I'm at a university, they have people help on the logistics side. When I was at the Navy, we were all on our own and it was so much paperwork. But now to have people help me with the paperwork of submission Oh man, and the proofreading. I mean, it's fantastic. I'm 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 thrilled. <laughs> yeah, you, so you can just be there with all the smart ideas and let everyone else do all the work, right? That's that's the goal. That's the goal at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on, I'm just gonna digress a minute. So human remains detection, it's kind of interesting. I was talking to Michelle Morn and Jenna Gadbury about this recently, huh? and they were telling me some interesting stories about uh, apparently they get some interesting questions from the human remains detection kind of uh, industry and there was there was a good story about a lady kind of firing bits of human remains around using a bow and arrow you know just to uh you know to, just, just to make sure that her, that her own scent wasn't getting into the area that the dogs would be needing to search and that kind of thing have you had any kind of interesting stories from any of the uh the areas or interesting questions from any of the fields that you work in Oh, I mean, I've had interesting experiences. I have, um, we did just get, um, oh, I wish I had, I wish I had looked at the results more closely before this. Um, I have my student that's working on the human remains project just did a huge, um, survey. And if anybody's listening to this replied to the survey, thank you very, very much. <laughs> but, um, we just got 180 people respond to it. So we know so much about how people in the human remains world are, maintaining and containing and storing their training aids. Um, one of the things that's fascinated me is I did not realize that toenails were a legitimate training aid. That is weirdly really gross to me. Like decomp fluid doesn't gross me out, but like toenails are apparently too but the fingernails are good. Yeah. Is it all nails or do you, have, do you just have an issue with toenails? I think all nails really <laughs> weird me out, but the toenails are like a whole nother level of that. I don't know why that bothers me, but my, my good human remains story is from grad school. I, um, I, <laughs> I was rotting a chicken in my backyard, which was a weird moment in my life in itself, because I was trying to compare uh, human remains to animal remains. And, um, I lived in Miami beach and we had a lot of cats, like not, we had cats, like Miami beach had a lot of cats. So you had to put it in a cage and weigh it down. So the cats didn't get to it. And um, since it's a, Miami Beach is an island and it, it tends to flood because of global warming. And uh, so it flooded and I found myself needing to take scent samples from a backyard that was completely covered in maggots. It was probably the most disgusting moment of my life. Like I had, I remember having my roommate who is not a chemist, who was just like a very nice um, restaurant server at that point. <laughs> like, I'm like, I just need you to stand behind me and just talk to me, talk me through this. So yeah, standing in a field of maggots was a weird moment in my life. I'd say. It's very weird. I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't collect some maggots just to see whether there's some difference between, you know, whether you could detect through the maggot 
you know, whether it had been feeding on the chicken or not. Yep. That would have been an option. Would have yeah, had yeah. to touch them then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you mentioned as well the oil spill detection. So um, I've I spoken to Paul Bunker about this previously yep. as well, and he was talking about some of the challenges in that field. Yeah, I mean, certainly from an operational perspective, what are the challenges that you've kind of really seen in that in that kind of environmental context? Yeah. So. I mean, one thing is that it's surprising with how much smell, you know, oil has, it's shocking how little information is out there. So one is that we're just not starting from very much information and, but there's so much date, there's so much odor. So it's really complex. So analytically, that's been a really big challenge for me. And then I suspect Paul mentioned this, but um, one of the other issues, it's with it, training aids. And this might be something that your listeners have issues with, but placing that training aid in a way that doesn't damage the environment is, is problematic, right? Because you, you want the dog to find buried oil or you want the dog to find oil underwater, but you don't want to contaminate that space, but you also want it to be realistic. Hmm. So we've actually been using, see it, look, it all comes back around. We've been using, um, Jenna uh, Gadbury, Michelle Mons, um, Tad, and um, not we, Paul has, I don't, I don't train things. <laughs> Paul has been using the Tads as a way to try to uh, mitigate that release of actual physical crude oil into the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that's a problem that your, your, a lot of your listeners have with their types of training aids is that they you know, it's risky for one reason or another to introduce it into the environment, invasive species or perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's challenges in a whole range of things. I mean, there's obviously part there are part issues with introducing things into the environment that shouldn't be there. Um, but there's also, and we'll come to this later on as well, but in some cases, the actual training aids are so hard to get your hands on. And and this is what I was talking to Michelle and Jenna about, is how you, you can maintain the integrity of those aids as long as possible mm-hmm. so you can get as much value out of those aids as you can. Um, and obviously where you where you deploy them in the field and so on can have a negative impact on that unless you are, you know, using a device such as a TAD or something like that to try and, right. you know. Right. So in that case, you're kind of talking about the opposite where now you're not wanting the environment to contaminate your aid because you can't just go get yeah, another it, one. It works both ways. Yeah. 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 There, there's lots and lots of challenges there Yeah, we, we, to be overcome in this field. So uh, that's what makes it fun, right? <laughs> it is. If it didn't, then I would have nothing to study. No, no. Exactly. Then I would probably be studying arts and explosives. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about the research that you've done then. So, so what has been really interesting, and, and not not just from a conservation you know, or environmental perspective, but broadly through your career, what's been the most kind of interesting, or you've discovered the most kind of interesting results, you know, from? I, mean, I honestly think the human remains stuff is is as far as like genres has been the most interesting because it's just so complex. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at um, containment for those is because it, it's not like when you put an explosive or a narcotic or whatever in a container, it doesn't generally change. It might slowly degrade over like a, a very long period of time, but it's not like having some some kind of material that has microbes on it mm-hmm. that literally degrades like as you're looking at it and the odor is constantly changing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's just such a challenge. And I think that challenge is really interesting. And it's also really interesting that the dogs just deal with it. Like the, it's, it's, the dogs are obviously very good at generalizing because they deal with training aids that are constantly changing and they still go out and they find things. Um, but how they do that and how complex the odor is that we can see from our side is, is really rather fascinating. Um, and it's fascinating because as humans, we've been trying to make a, you know, an electronic nose sort of detector dog for a very long time. And that while we're not particularly good at it in many fields at all, but it's a lot easier to do in with simpler targets like explosives. But when you look at human remains or you look at, um, invasive species or things like that, that have very complex odor signatures that tend to change over time. There's just no instrument that can even get close to be able to, to pick out the important parts of that odor signature, key on them. And even as they are changing over time, it's just, and then on top of that, they're doing this in environments that have other many, many other odors, which is one of the problems that we have with instrumentation is that they just don't have the selectivity of the dog. So I think, um, to get back to your actual question, I think the most interesting thing I've learned over time is one, how complex some of these questions are on the chemistry side, which thus just makes me more and more impressed with how the, well, the dogs handle that. Mm. So just to unpack that one a little bit more, because while you're talking there, a few thoughts kind of popped into my mind. So while most of our listeners aren't involved in human rights detection, they could be involved in a while or, or, well, they could be involved in live animal detection. And so, sure. so people detection, or they could be involved in cryptic you know, um, endangered species detection. So at the mm-hmm. moment, they might be looking for live animal or they might be looking for sign, you know, so, so scat or something like that, of that mm-hmm. cryptic kind of endangered species. But obviously, you know, things die. And so they're out there you know, in the in, in the field as well and at various different grades of, like yeah, like you said, um, yeah, decomposition or whatever. So, so how would you go about? Like, so, so say you wanted to get your dog. So, say you had a, a dog that was trained for endangered species, and you thought, right, okay, I'm mm-hmm. going to train it on the scat, and I'm going to train it on the sign, and I'm going to train it on the live animal, but I'm also going to train it on a, you know, a, a to find the carcass of that animal because again, that still mm-hmm. proves my point that the animal is, was in that area. So. How would you go about training a dog for all of those different stages when you don't have an awful lot of source material to work with? So generally, and I'm not a dog trainer, so I am, I am approaching this from what I have. I'm approaching this from how I would envision the the chemical signatures would look. Mm -hmm. Um, So generally what I would do if now I'm working with the assumption that we have a good training aid for like, so whatever your best training aid is, um, I would start there. So you imprint there, make sure the Mm -hmm. dog understands that. I mean, and I'm also working on the assumption the dog understands the, the actual work understands the game of detection. So I would personally take whatever I think is the best training I had. What is that training aid that gets me closest to the dog finding the animal? Yeah, that I so, 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 that so I the, the, the live animal effectively, you know. Right. So if you have a live animal, if you have sent off a live animal, um, if you have uh, bedding, or I don't know, it depends on what the animal is, yeah. um, bedding from the animal's nest, or what have you, um, whatever you have that would that would get the dog closest to the animal, start with that, imprint on that, and then start 
stepping away from it. Okay. Well, maybe scat will get me pretty, pretty close to the animal. So then maybe let's generalize the scat. And, and, and the thing is about that, we don't know if the dog is generalizing like, oh, I smell a similar signature here and I smell it in the scat or if they're just learning a different odor, but at that point it's okay. So then they go learn another odor. And then as you introduce, and you might, you might start introducing new training, aid, additional new training aids at this point, solely because you come across you, you, maybe you're training with um, someone else now. And so they have other training aids, or maybe you get access to a different type of training aid, or maybe you do have three, four or five different types of training aids. Um, as you start adding more and more things to that scent picture, theoretically, the dog should start to generalize and create a more general scent picture. And what can really aid in this is to give them distractors that are very relevant. Um, so the dog can learn it's this, not that it's mm-hmm. all of this, not all of those. Um, and the thing about distractors is you want to make sure that the dogs are getting a range of them. They're not getting like this, like we get in a habit of always putting out gloves and always putting out, I don't know, something that you coffee grounds mm-hmm. or like things. Yeah. Okay. Those are all good. Gloves are great. You touch everything with gloves. Gloves are a great distractor. The bag that your materials in great distractor. Um, you got to do that. That's really proofing the dogs off though, more so than a distractor, yeah. but with yeah. the distractors, you really want a big range of odors and things that will challenge them. I've definitely done trials where they're like, well, don't put food out because the dogs might try to eat it. I'm like, your dogs are rewarded with Kong. So they mm. should not be eating the food during work. Like this seems like a personal problem. <laughs> so you have to challenge them. You know, if you don't want the dog to find a different type of animal, then maybe you need to go find distractors from different types of animals, for instance. Hmm. But obviously you don't want to challenge them too much until they've got the game down. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's just one of those, it's one of those interesting questions because you can think about it from a dog training, training perspective. You can think about it from an environmental or ecological perspective. You can think about it from, uh, operational perspective but when you're coming down to the odor you know in, in this field anyway you, you you kind of you're working with what you can work with and any tips yeah. and thoughts you can have around how you can sensibly you know increase the what what your dogs be able to find in the field that may be useful to you is valuable you know insight but, right. but that's that's when you start getting into the whole how much does a dead something smell like the live something? And, you know, are they going to be looking for the dead rather than the live? And what I really want is the live. And, you know. Well, freshly dead is going to smell. It's probably going to have residual living odor yeah. compared to really, really dead. Um, I mean, that's something that we're actually trying to look at for humans, which is obviously a little complicated. Mm. Um, but I mean, that is, we do know that they're, you have living, and this is the same for humans or an animal. You have a living scent and you have what happens when you decompose. And there's obviously at some point a crossover. So we don't know exactly where that crossover is. And of course, there's just many, many variables that can affect the, the rate in which it goes from live odor to decomp. But if you're going to do a dead animal, the fresher dead will get you closer to generalizing than the really, really dead. Yeah. But again, you don't always have these sort of choices, but you know. No, no, exactly. Mind. 
Yeah, and I mean human remains detection and I'm only going to this all the time because there's there's there are some parallels to conservation. Do you find or have you seen um that there's any kind of difference with the dog's behavior or indication yeah based on diet for example or or or, or sex or race or anything like that. So you know, I mean so female vegan versus male, you know, carnivore, does the dog kind of initially seem uncertain? I don't know the answer to that entirely, but what, what I do know, I did a study when I was at the FBI with, um, human blood and which was, we were using it as a surrogate, um, because it has kind of all the same macromolecules and obviously it runs through the entire body. So we were using blood and, um, we were looking at blood aging and there was a dog component to it, but it's not particularly relevant for this particular question. Um, but what we saw is that when, we took the blood out of our arms. So there was several of us that were donating for this. Um, and you know, the VOCs that come in from that blood were all different. So fresh, fresh blood, they were all, there were, there were some similarities, but there was a, a variety of different VOCs between people. And that's going to be related to what we eat. Um, what chemicals we breathe in, um, whether, you know, city or country or, or um, that could be related to gender and a whole variety of other things. Um, and we didn't try to pinpoint whether those volatiles were coming from, although we did find one in my blood that we think is related to me eating lunch out of Tupperware a lot, which was a little disturbing. Mm, that's, that's not <laughs> <It> was, good. <laughs> it was not good. It was a little upsetting. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, so, but when you, so you have the three people's blood and they had different signatures. And then what was fascinating is that after a day or so of sampling, you started to see them all pretty much look the same. So those volatiles that were related to our life while we were living basically evaporated off. And they were, um, what you started to see was volatiles that would be produced just by the breakdown of the cells and the breakdown of the cells were all the same, no matter what I did earlier in life. So to answer your question, chances are the dog is just going to smell decaying human as decaying human, or in this case, um, that, one animal type versus not versus a different type of animal. So they would cue in on the right animal. Um, and we compared these um, volatile profiles. This is actually my dissertation work to animals and the humans were very different and the mammals. So what we saw, and I did not go into detail on the animals because I was obviously looking at the humans, but what sure. we saw was that humans smelled like human, dead humans, smell like dead human, dead mammals smelled like dead mammals. And then fish and chicken were like in a different just whole, whole other situation. world. Yeah. Dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Particularly the fish, the fish smelled totally different than everything else, which we would expect. Right. Mm. But um, yeah. So you're, it shouldn't theoretically make a difference in once you get to the actual decomp phase, what genetic profile somebody had or what they ate or things of that nature. Yeah. Okay. So one more question before we move off talking about dead people. Um, obviously, I've heard, I don't know whether it's an urban myth or not, um, so I'm going to ask the question. So you say dead people smell like dead people. So does dead pork smell like dead people? Because I've heard that you can train human remains detection on burying a leg of pork. That's a great question. Um, it seems as though anecdotally, and I believe, you know what, I don't remember exactly what her results showed, but I think Shari Forbes did some of this research. It seems as though dogs can generalize from um, dead pigs to dead people based on the at least the anecdotal evidence. Um, 
my limited research on the animals, and I would like to extend this eventually, but my limited research with the animals is that pork smells like mammals and humans smell like humans. Hmm. So, yeah, fair enough. That's probably enough about the dead things. Um, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about your new book now, Canines: The Original Biosensors. And I haven't seen a copy of it yet because I think it's only just come out, isn't it? Um, so, so tell me about that. How did that come about? What's what's in the book? Why should people get it? Yeah, I actually, I heard that it's really hard to purchase in Australia right now, but I think, I don't know. Um, it's because we're all furiously I, buying I guess, it. I, I don't, I, no, I, for some reason it was, it was difficult to purchase, um, I guess through Amazon in Australia, like they were charging some insane amount of money for it, but yeah. um, I don't know if that's still the case. However, I can send you a link to, um, I don't know, yep. give to people that yep, has I can put, I can the, put it in the show notes. Yep. Right. Yeah, that, that's what I'm shooting. You can tell yeah. how many podcasts I listen to. Um, uh, but I can give you the link to the uh, publisher and then I have a 30% off code too. Cool. So that'd be great. I'm sure anyway. listeners would appreciate that, but let's talk about the book. Yes. And it's a little important because it got the size of the book got a little out of hand. So it is, it is a little large. Um, so I put the book together with, um, Craig Schultz, who works at the FBI. He does forensic canines. So he does human remains and human and live human tracking. Um, and we, and he was kind of my operational side. Cause I realized if I didn't get an operational person in there with me, it was going to get way too sciencey. So what we were doing, the, the premise behind the book is looking at the dog. Well, it was kind of answering two questions. If you look at the dog as a tool, what kind of information would you put into a quote unquote user's manual for that tool? And then on the flip side of the coin is the dog isn't a tool. How is it different than a tool? And what do we need to know in order to understand and work the dog properly? Right. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the questions that we wanted our chapters to kind con- to contemplate. Um, but it is split up into three sections. So we have more of the, um, dog versus instrument. And in fact, we have a, also have a um, dog versus insect chapter. And then we have um, more of a strategies where we're look, talking about behavior, talking about the chemistry, talking about the different sciences behind how dogs work and what does that mean for us um, using the dogs to their best ability. And then the bottom, the bottom, I'm sorry, the third, the third section uh, is um, applications. So I tried to do Um, For the applications, and a lot of these canine books have applications, and I tried to stick with ones that maybe people have not read about before. So um, we do, we have a blood detection chapter instead, for instance, um, we have a really interesting human remains chapter. We have some conservation um, information in there. Um, uh, Paul Bunker talked about crude oil. So we we tried to get um, a large array of, of the field from practitioners, operational people, and from scientists. So um, up front, it does read a little science heavy, but if you look, there are lots of practitioners that have written chapters in it as you get a little bit further into it. So we kind of are aiming this at both the scientists in the field and the kind of trainers and maybe handlers that want more information. Um, And it's supposed to be more Um, of a reference book. So you pick the chapters that are useful or interesting to you. Maybe you don't read every single chapter, depending on what your interests are. Yeah. No, that sounds good. I can't wait to have a look at it. It, uh, 
like I said, I'm very saying, excited. It's, it's, I finally got a, it. Yeah, it's quite a large, uh, a large volume. And uh, when I saw the picture of it, I thought, wow, there's a lot of information in there. So <laughs> yeah, so it ended up being about 700 pages, but <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Um, but uh, it's we have a large number of chapters. I can't remember how many we have. I want to say it's 20, 21 or 22 chapters. So um, I think it just. What, you know, it started with, okay, I really respect these people in the field off the top of my head. Here's who I would want to contribute. And then when I started looking at how that would fit together, there were holes in the story that I was trying to tell with all the chapters. So then we went back and added more people that maybe I was less familiar with um, and kind of filled in the hole. So it kind of told the whole evolution of like, um, this is the canine as a tool this is what we need to think about if the canine is a tool. This is when we need to think about if the canine is more than a tool and here's how that tool can be used. Yeah. yeah. And, how and here are the cool things that they can do that instruments can't. So that was one of the big things in the application chapters is I tried to pick applications where the point is, is that because dogs are different than instrumentation, instrumentation can't do these things, or at least they can't do it as well. Yeah, it's um. I mean, there's a lot of information. How long did it take you to write? I mean, from conception to to now, how long has that been? So it took two years to get it turned in. So I they get, the publisher gave me a year, and then I I went back and asked for an extra six months, and they gave me an extra year, which I now realized was. I mean, we were Craig and I were submitting stuff like the day it was due. Mm. So um, uh, so we had two years to get it basically conceptualized, get it out to the other co-authors, write our own chapters, um, and then get it all edited and submitted. And then they actually moved relatively quickly. I think it was, okay. So it took, I don't know, six months or so to get, to get the, for the uh, publisher. But again, I gave them 700 pages of stuff. So it takes a minute. <laughs> but overall, I mean, it was a great, it was a, it was a really great experience that I would like you with the grants would prefer to never do again. <laughs> so we're not going to see a, a follow-up volume then? No, no. <laughs> I'll write chapters for other people's books. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be responsible for, I mean, I don't know that I have enough else to say quite honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but you're only young. I mean, like, if everything you got to say is, is there in the book already, I mean, what's next? <laughs> Well, I guess we'll do um, the uh, second edition. I think I can handle that. Yeah. <laughs> a, a bit of an edition, a spring clean, something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, so let's move on from that then. So so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today, and I'm trying to do sort of when we've got people like yourselves on the show, I like to do a bit of a masterclass section, you know, for the benefit of the listeners. Okay. So, so talk about a bit of a, a bit of a topic that may exist within within the training or operational deployment of the dogs that you may be able to provide some guidance with or some insight or some even just some thought provoking, you know, commentary. So I wanted to talk about um, cocktail method of odor imprinting, yeah, with you okay. today, um, because obviously that you know it was very popular. Um, in, in a lot of fields and there's a lot of theories as to why that's a great way of training and that kind of thing, but it might not be. So, so let's talk about that. What, what is it? I and, love that. Topic. Yeah. So, so what is it? And, and, you know, what have you, what, what are your thoughts on it? 
Sure. So in the in the U.S. anyway, we call it the stew method, um, but cocktailing is the same thing. So the the premise is that um, I want my dog to find six different types of odors, right? So not gen- we're not talking generalization here. We're talking six discrete in this particular case types of odors. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put them all in a container and I'm going to let them stew, and then I'm going to train my new dog that has never been trained on odor before, or maybe has been trained on like a calibrant sort of thing. Um, I'm going to put, let my dog train on that stew and imprint on that stew. And then what should happen. And so the idea is that you only have to take the time to imprint the dog on one thing. And then what should happen is after that imprinting phase is over, you should be able to take all of the stew ingredients out, put them out, put out fresh ones and put them out separately. And the dog should be able to hit on them. So that is, that is the idea is that with the dog will learn every single odor individually that's in that stew. If you put it all together, however, there are scientifically some issues here with the way odor works and the way we process odor. So I, I am not, um, a neurobiologist, but I will delve momentarily into that side of things. So, um, from my reading, the, we can either, when we experience an odor mixture, we being humans, or we presume dogs would be the same. Um, you can either smell each ingredient individually, um, for now I'm gonna have a hard time, uh, for instance, um, maybe in a tomato sauce, you can smell the garlic, you can smell the basil, you can smell the oregano and you can sort of smell the tomatoes, right? So you can, you can pick out those ingredients. Um, However, if you are baking an apple pie, um, you might just smell it as an apple pie and you're not really picky other than maybe the cinnamon, you're not really picking out the individual ingredients. Maybe that wasn't the best example, but go with me here. So you can either understand the individual ingredients, or you can have a new odor, a new odor was formed from that mixture. And you say, oh, that's whatever. Coffee is a really good example. Coffee has a ton of different odorants that come off of it, but we just recognize it as coffee. And it's not one particular odorant that creates coffee. It's a mixture. Um, So um, we can do one or the other. And what scientists have learned is that the more odors there are in a mixture, the more likely we perceive that as a novel odor than as the individual component. So yeah, sure. Let's say I only put four things in my stew. You're like, oh, well, that's only four. So I should be able to, to perceive that elementally. But what you have to keep in mind is Um, if training aid one in there is composed of six different odorants and training aid two is composed of five different odorants and four is seven, then you have a huge mixture of different odorants in there. So it's very confusing and it's very likely that the animal is going to perceive it as a novel odor. The other issue you have is overshadowing. And what overshadowing is, is when you have um, an odor that is to us perceived very, we can perceive it very well, very, very strong. Um, so usually on the chemist side, it means it has a high vapor pressure, which means there's a lot of it available. It wants to be in the vapor phase. So it wants to be, it's easily smellable, basically mm-hmm. has to be in a gas phase in order to smell it. Right. So some compounds go into the gas phase easier than others. Um, which is why tomatoes, I said, don't have much of a smell compared to like garlic because garlic has a lot of compounds that want to be in the gas phase. Tomatoes don't. So um, if you have an odor mixture and you have something that has a whole lot of odor next to something that has very, very little odor, that whole lot of odor will, will mask it. It will cover it up. 
and it'll be, become very, very hard to smell. So this is the same thing as trying to listen to something very quiet when you have a lot of background noise, right? Yep. So it's very, very hard to do. So what can happen in that stew and is that if you have one of your training aids has a ton of odor coming off of it and the other one doesn't have a lot of odor, it will mask it. And the dogs are predominantly going to learn that higher odor. And this is um, the limited studies that have been done. This is what was seen is that um, this was done with explosives and there were several explosives and one had a lot of odor. Uh, Three of them had very, very little odor and then two were kind of in the middle. And what they found is that when they separated those explosives out and they used fresh, that the only, the only thing that the dogs could reliably detect was the explosive that had the, t- the lot of odor. And basically what that is, is that that's the only thing the dogs smelled. They smelled what came out. Now, if you had trained them separately and then put them in a mixture, would the dog maybe have been able to try really hard and sniff out um, individual components? If you're listening to a lot of noise, but you're listening specifically for your wife's voice, would you be able to hear your wife's voice? Yes, you probably would. But if you're just told to walk into a room and say, hey, find that new guy's voice, it would, and it's a room full of people, it'd be very, very hard to do. Yeah. So that that's kind of the premise. Um, and there's not a lot of research that's been done on it. Um, it's rather limited, although the research that was done was very, was very clear. So this is a concern with the stew method. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the so the better method then you're saying is to take the individual odors that you want to train on, train them systematically individually. Yeah. So, 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 so there's no shortcuts, basically. Unfortunately, that yeah, it's there's not really a shortcut. You just have to you you just have to train it. Um, uh, you know, you might want to do something where the first thing you train on is maybe not the highest amount of odor because then the dog is expecting a high amount of odor and it becomes hard to find the lower. So maybe you want to start somewhere in the middle. Um, but that's kind of a game that you have to decide yourself based on what type of training aids you have. But the stew method is a little, um, not as good as it might be advertised just because there are some chemical things going on there that are going to, um, impede your dog's ability to be really highly proficient. Yeah. Okay. But then let's talk about, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head now. So we talk about the overshadowing factor. So say I'm training a dog to find a particular scat and say my search area is a beautiful woodland full of wild garlic or something like that, using the garlic example. So the scat is going to be sitting underneath the wild garlic, which as we've mentioned has got, has the potential to overshadow. Sure. So, so when I'm so when I'm planning for that particular deployment, what do I then do? Do I work so the with the garlic and the scat? <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that you have going for you on this, this is bad. Um, the the thing that you have going for you here is you also have something called selective attention. And what selective attention is, if if you understand, so let's think about humans are, uh, do more auditory, uh, visual, obviously mm-hmm. than. And with the nose, um, then olfactory. So let's think about your wife's voice again. The the longer so when you first met this person, um, you probably like you could hear her talk, obviously, but you might not be able to pick her out in the crowd. Um, and then maybe you date for a little bit and you can start to hear that voice a little better. But then after being married for a very long time, you could pick that voice out from far away, huge crowd, no problem. And so what that really is is selective attention is that 
if you're really listening for something or you understand, or you know it very, very well, it's easier to find. So that's why you want to imprint on something really pure. So the dog really understands that signature that you want them to get. That's why you have to be really careful about contamination on the things that you're imprinting on. Um, Cause the dog, you can, that dog, you can get the dog to learn that odor signature very, very well. Um, and then you start to challenge them and make them pick that odor out, that odor, you that target odor out from other being masked maybe by other odors or contaminants or whatever. I always tell people to not throw, don't throw away your contaminated training aids. They're useful. They're just not useful for imprinting. So if you know that you've got gook or odor or something on your training aid, cool. That's going to be really good for maintenance training. It's just not good for imprinting, but that's the kind of idea is you want the dogs to get the selective attention. So the fact that they're in a garlic field won't matter. I mean, you, I, there's all those anecdotal stories about um, like border patrol dogs being able to find all kinds of drugs through coffee, through orange peels, through the dogs can do it. This is why they're better than our instruments in some cases, because the dogs are very good at being selective. You just have to teach them. That's what you want them to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and that segues very neatly into the next question, which was about contamination. So importance of contamination, how do you avoid contamination? And obviously I've I've spoken to to Jenna and Michelle about this as well. Um, But what are your views on contamination? What can somebody, you know, working in this field do, you know, what are the, what's the 101? What's the practical, what, what are the things you should always do to avoid contamination? Well, first, you need to understand a couple of things that one, you cannot completely avoid contamination, but what you can do is understand how things get contaminated, what it could do to your training aid and how you could potentially mitigate it. So it's all about mitigating the situation. So um, the really basics are, you know, um, change gloves between samples. Um, You know, you don't want to drag odor or you certainly don't want to drag residue from one training aid to another. Um, how you store them when they are not being used is really important. So most of the scientists out there recommend double containment, which is basically where you have two good uh, containment sources. So maybe a jar and a bag or a bag in a jar, um, but it has to be two good ones. If one of your sources of containment is a cotton bag, that does not count. That is just a vessel you're using to move your training aid. It is not containing odor in any manner. doesn't count as one of your, you need to get two actual good containers and then do that. And then, you know, if you can segregate the really stinky stuff from the not stinky stuff, that's an additional layer of protection because that really stinky stuff. So I call it accidental stew. What happens is when you store all that stuff together, you get an accidental stew where now you have your particularly stinky compounds with lots of, lots of odor on them. Um, contaminating your other training aids that may not have as much odor on them. And um, the longer you let that soak like that, the harder it is to do anything about it. Um, and that's something really to be, to be aware of um, a good example. So I, I was talking to a handler of mine, a handler of mine. I don't own a handler, a handler friend of mine. And he showed me um, a new kit that he got a new explosive training aid kit. And he said, I just got new dogs. I just got a new kit look at this and tell me what I should train on first. And I looked at all the stuff he had in there and I'm like, you have, you have fuel, you have diesel fuel in there with, he had ammonium nitrate diesel fuel mixture. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, when you opened your case, did the entire thing smelled like diesel fuel? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, like, yeah, all of your training aids smell like diesel fuel. It doesn't matter what you start on. 
they all smell like mm-hmm. diesel fuel. So that's a, that's a storage thing, but, um, but additionally, and you can control storage. So you can control that. That's what I call cross-contamination where your training needs are talking to each other. You don't want the training needs to talk to each other. Um, you want to keep them in their own little rooms. So that's, that's one side of contamination and that you do have control over how you handle those, how you store those, you have the control over that. But when you go out to the field and you decide you want to do a practice run in the garlic field, you need to put your training aid out and your training aid is going to be a little sponge and it is going to soak up the odor around it. And there is nothing you can do about it because the alternative is to never train in a challenging location. And that is not option. So for like explosives handlers, you got to put the explosive under the car. Sometimes you're going to have to, you want the dog to search a car or narcotics handlers, but the same thing is if you want to, if you want the dog to be able to search around a deer carcass or something like that, you, you got to challenge them. Right. Hmm. So you got to put them in um, areas where there's high background. So a couple of suggestions here. One, I would not put my imprinting material out there. Anything that you need it to be maintained pristine, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, two, be aware when you're doing this. Be aware when you're putting your training aid in a uh, location where it could pick up odor. So I gave some really obvious examples, but also like if you're just training in a room that has maybe fresh carpet, that's got a lot of odor. Um, if you're putting it in a car, if somebody's smuggling something, um, not just the underside of the car, but also the interior of the car, a new car has a lot of odor. So when you're hiding, I don't know why you'd be hiding something in a new car. Usually that's not what you hide things in, but you know, whatever, nobody asked me. So when you're hiding things, you gotta be very vigilant and paying attention to what you're doing. And then if you think that you have, you've contaminated, if you put this in the garlic field and you know that it's full of odor, I would change the bag, change the containment that it's in entirely, get rid of that. It's done. So put it in a fresh container and then, um, let it off gas for what is reasonable for you. So depending on what your training is, um, if it's hazardous, if it is, uh, depending on what issues you might have, legally or hazard wise with your training aid, you're somewhat, you might be limited, but let it off gas for an hour or so. If you can in a clean room that doesn't have a lot of odor by it and see if you can get some of those volatiles to come off and then go close it up and put it away. And you're closing it up again in like a clean container, not the container that you had it out in the garlic field with. So that is my best suggestion for mitigating it. And as I said, we're working on a project right now to kind of get an idea of the extent that training aids are contaminated in the field. And so that way we can get better suggestions on how to mitigate it. So I'm hoping to have more concrete suggestions in a year or so. <laughs> That's great. That's very helpful. Thank you very much. So I think we've run up to the end of our time. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to join me today and have this this chat. I'm sure it's been very useful for a lot of our listeners. Um, for people that want to follow your work, get in touch with you, maybe have some questions after this uh, this interview or anything like that, how should they do that? Um, you can find me. On, I am on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Lauren DeGrief, my name is spelled super fun to make it challenging for you. Lots of duplicates in there and things. Yeah. So the first name is weird. The last name is weird. It's a little complicated, um, but you'll just look on the podcast and make sure you get all the letters right. But you can, I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I try to stay uh, pretty 
connected on those. And then I'm also at Florida International University. So um, you can look me up there. I do not have my website done yet, but I'm going to do it this summer, I swear. Um, uh, and you can find me through one of those places. And I'm always happy to answer questions. That's great. Lauren, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Conservation Canine Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please like, share and subscribe wherever you find us.